Good morning, and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Amy Shepard, and I'm here with my co-host, Julie Dye. The Morning Fix is a podcast series brought to you by the 510K Cafe. We interview medical technology leaders to discuss trends, innovations, and the future of marketing and communications in the medtech industry. Well, Esther, we're so excited to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. I am delighted to be here. Thank you. So as I mentioned, I have been really following your career since you you were very integrated into the tech space. Um, and now you've really transitioned a lot of your investing and your work into healthcare. And so I wanted to find out a little bit more about that transition and how you, you know, became interested in the sector. Okay. And first, I really have to sort of point out, I'm more interested in health than in care. Okay. Interested in how to how to foster health and resilience and, and help kids grow up and fill their potential versus basically repair jobs. And in in a sense that's actually the story. So th- the real reason I'm in health slash healthcare is I started out as a journalist and asked questions. You know, why, why, why? And I did a lot in tech that was really interesting. But then tech seemed to sort of start moving towards, you know, like personalized cosmetics and Uber for shoe shines, And I, I was looking for something slightly more meaningful. And healthcare seemed to be a huge area. I ran into this guy, Charlie Silver, who had a website called Real Age that you might have run across, asked you, you know, do you have pets? Do you exercise? What do you eat? And it would give you a score that was your so-called real age, as opposed to your chronological age, depending on whether you were healthier than the average person your age or or less healthy. And his name was Charlie Silver. He ended up selling it to Hearst, which ultimately sold it to ShareCare. But what really intrigued me was who he sold his first company to. And that was Jiffy Lube. In other words, he was in, you know, oil changes and car maintenance. Yeah. And suddenly I thought, yeah, you know, that's that's what we should be doing with our bodies. Instead of running repair shops all over the place, we should be keeping the bodies healthy the way people keep their cars healthy. And, you know, it wasn't like an overnight transformation, but that story has just resonated with me. And if you look at the state of the world, you just have to ask, why are we spending so much money trying to fix people who shouldn't have been broken in the first place? So... That ended up to my current day job, which is Wellville, which we can talk about at length later, depending on what you want to talk about. But that's really how I got here. Personally, I've always been not a health nut, but just a health practitioner, a daily swimmer. I don't really drink much. I don't eat meat. And it's not a religious conviction or an ethical thing. It's just, you know, I kind of like my body in good shape. So I don't like to do things to mess it up. That's fair. And, you know, we would love to hear about Wellville um, since you mentioned it. Okay. So it's a 10 year nonprofit project dedicated to equity, long term thinking, and well being. And all those words are very carefully chosen. It's basically, it's nonprofit. We, we're not a foundation. We don't hand out money. We also, aren't trying to grow or scale ourselves. We're trying to 
kind of be role models and opinion leaders and so forth by working in five small communities. And then at the end of the 10 years, which will be at the end of 2024, basically tell the stories about what our communities did and encourage other communities to think, hmm, if those people did that, we can too. Because those people for Wellville, all they did was ask questions. They didn't actually do any of the work. And we don't. We're the the catalyst, the the coach on the sidelines. We don't own the ball. We don't win the games. But we help the communities build what they want to build. It's kind of like when you raise children, you try and give them intrinsic motivation. You don't bribe them to do their homework, but you make them feel excited about what they're learning. And in a sense, that's what we're trying to do in the communities. We don't give them fish. We don't teach them to fish. We're trying to guide them to build their own fishing schools, so to speak. And that sounds very vague. So the five communities are Spartanburg, South Carolina, North Hartford, Connecticut, Muskegon, Michigan, which is the community I work in, Lake County, California, which is just north of all the billionaires in Silicon Valley, and Clatsop County, Oregon, which is about two hours northwest on the coastline, uh, northwest of Portland, Oregon. It, it wasn't a nice white lady showed up to tell them what to do, but more somebody in the community that was some kind of a cooperative outfit applied when we had our initial request for applications back in 2014 to be a Wellville community. The, the time it was called Hiccup. And in each community, it takes a few years to really establish trust. You know, why are these people here? Are they going to keep coming back? Can we really trust them? I guess they don't live here. They don't want our jobs. But, and, you know, finally now they kind of trust us and we offer useful advice and awkward questions. And we're about to have our annual Wellville gathering in Lake County next month. Esther, that sounds interesting. Thank you for giving uh, that explanation on Wellville. And uh, switching gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you, recently you mentioned the internet has given us the chance to satisfy many of our short-term desires instantly and that we need to think uh, longer term, but we've mostly done an inept job of that so far. In terms of innovating in healthcare, what are some ways that we could do a better job of thinking long-term? Uh, we could start paying for long-term results and, and actually doing effective actuarial calculations. I mean, what we've been doing, in a sense, is renting our health rather than investing in it long-term. And so what happens is you rent your health by you know, not really thinking much about the future and you know, drinking too much, eating badly, not exercising, uh, you know, not getting screened, etc. And then you wake up and you're 50 or 60 and you're in bad shape, as opposed to if you invest in your health, you are keeping healthy all along so that when you hit 50 or 60, you're still in good shape. And you know, when you, my favorite question to ask a lot of people in healthcare is when you are looking at your ROI on your spending, how far out do you look? And, you know, these are public companies, they have investors and Medicaid churn is often, you know, people come and go more than once a year and your average insurance companies, maybe a couple of years, employers, you know, I don't care if this person gets diabetes 10 years from now. And so the system is, the incentives are all wrong. It, 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 the, the amount of money you get for 
preventing diabetes, you know, if you're capitated, if you get paid that way, is much, much less than the amount of money you get paid when they actually get diabetes to treat them. And so, you know, it's not that the people in the system are evil, but the system's incentives mean, oh, yeah, let's wait until this guy gets diabetes and then we can upcode him and charge a lot more. And, you know, we're getting the results the system is designed to produce. So I, I ask that question a lot and people often hesitate to answer. You know, look forward. It, it does seem in my perspective that we are seeing some um, evolution towards more value-based care um, and more focus on that. Like, you know, one example is um, employers now will give you a, you know, a bonus or um, yeah. a break on your insurance if you, you know, do certain things, right, to, to maintain healthy weight, um, not be smoking and those sort of things. But what are some other ways that we can look towards a, more of a value-based care model and make that work? Yeah. Well, the, I mean, the challenge is, of course, <laughs> yeah, the financial system still is pretty short term. Probably the most important right now is honestly mental health. And it's now being offered as an as a service, as a you know, part of your health plan more and more, which is great. Uh, one thing I would love to do is is do some research, not just this person was in the mental health program. Are they working better, more productive? Are they staying on the job longer? I'd like to look at the direct reports of the people who are getting the mental health support, because I suspect that it's, it's kind of the like secondhand smoke. If you work for a toxic boss who has mental health problems, your productivity is probably lower. You, you might, you know, toxic bosses cause people to leave all the time. So the, the impact of mental health, I think is in fact real and measurable. I'm not sure we're measuring it very effectively. And if you, if you look at, Outfits, Medicare Advantage in particular, which is doing a lot of this along with employers, they use most of these programs more to market their Medicare Advantage plans rather than actually to reduce costs. And I mean, in the end, I think they will reduce costs and they will also just make people happier and healthier. And you're right. There is more attention being paid, but it's still, it's still not really broadly practice or effective. Uh, and again, a lot of people are advocating for it. And certainly the idea is out there, but it's like the idea of racial equity. Everybody talks about it. <laughs> right. Right. We're pretty bad at making it happen because it's complicated. Right. There's so many, there's so many things that need to happen and there's no one fix, right? There's no one, one, one solution. So, well, I'm, I'm glad that you also brought up mental health, um, as a really important issue within the health sector. Um, that's a very important one that's near and dear to my heart um, because of family members. But another one that, you know, I've had personal experience with is uh, elder care. And, you know, as my, um, you know, family members are getting older, um, you know, we've faced many more challenges, you know, helping to keep them in their homes and, you know, somewhat healthy and self-sufficient. And so I know that you at South by Southwest were on a panel, you know, related to um, elder care and, and aging. And I'd love to hear, you know, more about that and your thoughts, you know, some opportunities in that space. Okay, sure. But then I, I also, we can go back to racial equity because that is, 
racial inequity is a huge source of basically bad health experiences. Um, I'm interested in elder care, partly because I'm going to need it at some point, and it's an important part of everything. It has, honestly, less follow-on effects than starting at the other end of the spectrum with kids and, and infant health and maternal mortality and, and it, you can't really call it this, but ultimately parent training, you know, how to be a good parent. Uh, but elder care is, is what we owe the people we will become. And it's, it's hard. And our system kind of expects family members to do it, not just for free, but caregivers often don't have time to do their jobs. They have to quit their jobs. They are stressed. Uh, everyone's worried about the person receiving the care and sometimes forgets to care for the caregivers. So it's, it's a huge problem. And, you know, I've seen this happen as I'm sure you have. Children are vulnerable, but there's usually a parent to protect them. Old people are vulnerable and they often are the target of scams of, you know, just all kinds of bad behavior in addition to really bad care. And that's scary. Yeah. They're, they're defenseless and they get ripped off and cared for badly. And, and you know, during COVID died in record numbers. So it's, it's a huge social problem that again, we need to figure out how collectively to care for the people who created us. Esther, I was at your panel and um, I, I agree. Uh, uh, I absolutely agree. I was really pleased to see that there was a panel on uh, elder care. Uh, uh, I could speak personally on the matter with my own parents and other family members that you're right. They are subject to scams. They don't get the care that they need. They're often neglected or, you know, they're considered last on the list in terms of care. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you are a voice for, for this very important segment. And I, I think it's very important as well. Yeah, I mean, I should mention Avonlea Care, which is a company I'm on the board of that is focused directly on this problem by supporting caregivers, family caregivers. It's 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 often one child kind of bears the burden, and Avonlea Care helps them coordinate with the rest of the family members as well as with the elder person who's living remotely receiving the care, and it's it's sort of a dynamic that just has been ignored how how to actually make this happen effectively. And now there's an app. That's wonderful. And, and talk about, I know you wanted to go back to um, health equity. Talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, it's racial equity that affects health along with so many other things. It's, it's just a system that, you know, doctors tend to be white. They tend to be well-educated. They often, you know, it varies, but the system does not respect people often. And especially it doesn't respect black people like, you know, Serena Williams's experiences or black maternal mortality is huge compared to the experience of whites. Our society that has systemic, not necessarily individual racism, does that in, in healthcare as well and in health. And it has a huge impact on the health of people of color. Uh, and there's, you know, kind of long standing 
issues where black people were experimented on and general mistrust of the system. And you saw a lot of that happen over the last few years. Uh, and it's not only black people. There's also poor white people. I mean, just in general, the system is, and it's hard to cure. You know, it doesn't respect its patients enough. And sometimes its patients don't listen to advice. And, you know, it's, we just need a better, a better culture, not just a bunch of rules. Absolutely. We have actually interviewed several people on the to- on that topic and, and, and how, um, you know, racial and health equity um, is being looked at by, you know, many different healthcare companies. But, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is, you know, having a chance to work with some of these companies, you know, as a consultant on the inside, everybody's talking about it. But I've heard multiple times um, in the past, you know, year or so that, you know, oh, yeah, we know this is important, but I don't often see the companies actually putting the the amount of money behind the programs and behind the work and behind the talk that perhaps they should be. So, you know, it will be interesting to see, especially, you know, as we're hopefully, you know, getting out of the pandemic and that puts such a spotlight on, you know, the inequity in healthcare for people of color, for people in, you know, um, low socioeconomic communities. Um, You know, I I hope that companies will continue to keep this at the forefront and will continue to put dollars behind it. Yeah. I mean, to the extent they're, there's no easy solution, but one important thing is just hire people who are not, you know, your traditional white males, upper middle class, you know, Harvard grads. Bring bring the community into the system is really important. But there's also let the community do its work. Don't don't smother them. Sometimes healthcare systems they they think, well, our duty to the community is to provide free care. Uh Maybe your duty to the community is to buy food from minority vendors. Maybe your duty to the community is to invest in housing around your beautiful medical campus. Support the community from below and sit at their table rather than always say, oh, yeah, we want somebody black to sit at our table and perform for us. You know, make, bring the community, respect them, don't just you know, smother them with your idea of what they probably need. And that's harder to do because you got to listen and you got to share power. And that's not always easy because right. of course, the people in that position just think they're so smart because they have a medical degree. Absolutely. Well, we have one final kind of fun question for you. Um, the title of our podcast is The Morning Fix by 510K Cafe. And so we ask every one of our guests a parting question, which is, what do you do for your morning fix? Uh, well, for me, that's really easy and it's it's gotten much easier. I just, so when I was 18 in college, there was a swimming pool in my dorm and I started swimming every day. It was really convenient. You just walk downstairs 6.30 or 7 and jump in the pool and you didn't even need a bathing suit. So it was really convenient. And I've basically been doing that every day since with you know one or two breaks while I was training to be a cosmonaut in Russia and the facility didn't have a pool. And But now, as of two months ago, I live in an apartment building in New York that has a swimming pool in the basement. So I just have to 
just like when I was 18, I just walked downstairs and there's the pool. So I swim for 50 minutes and whatever's on my mind, I can deal with it in the pool. There's, there's nothing to distract me, no social media, not even a pen and pencil. So I can write down notes. I just sort of have to deal with things holistically. You know, what am I going to say on the podcast today? Uh, should I really take that trip to California or do I need to stay home and make sure I can pay my taxes? And it's been a blessing and, you know, maybe I'm addicted to it, but I'm addicted to something that makes me healthy, which is pretty good. I love it. Well, you were the first swimmer um, in our, our in our in our guest uh, list. We've had walkers and runners and meditators, and even just last week we had somebody who wakes up with Wordle. Uh, um, but you, I think, and uh, Esther's also our first uh, astronaut in training. I know. So tell us a little bit about that. I, I, I really do have to hear about that before we let you go. Okay. Well, it was. It was six months in Russia in Star City, and I was basically embedded in the space program. And the great thing about the space program, especially now, this is bittersweet, was that the Russians and the Americans worked together. So I was kind of a, a customer of the Russian space program, but I actually hung out with the NASA astronauts who were training there a lot. And the training was basically space plumbing and space medicine, which was marvelous. And of course... I, I spoke some Russian and my Russian got better during the course of this. And I got an experience of kind of Russian government culture, which uh, <laughs> it was a good education. It did not, it made, hey, I totally loved doing it. I'm very glad I did it. I was also very glad to get back home. So, and I saw space travel from the inside and I know lots of, funny stories about astronauts that I can't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that that is very cool. And I'm so glad Amy mentioned that because you're right. You are absolutely the first person we know that's gotten very close to space. So, <laughs> well, thank you so, so much, Esther. I mean, it was truly a pleasure and definitely one of the highlights of, you know, this podcasting experience, being able to speak with you. So thank you again um, for being here and hopefully we can keep in touch. Um, and to all of our listeners, we just want to thank you for being here for us and uh, stay tuned for more episodes of The Morning Fix. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you so much. Take thank care. Thank you, Esther.